Hello, welcome to Security Insights. I'm your host, Gunnar Peterson, CISO at Forder, a trust platform for digital commerce. And today I am joined by Phil Venables, who is Chief Information Security Officer and Vice President for Google Cloud. Google Cloud, Phil was a partner at Goldman Sachs, where he held a number of roles over a long career and was their first chief information security officer, a role that he held for 17 years. Phil, that might be a record in any business and definitely in banking. Yeah, so good to good to be here. Yeah, I I, I, I must admit, I, I suspect there's a few, you know, there's a few others that have been fairly long tenured in the CISO role, but we're certainly at the uh, you know, uh, the uh, the uh, the other end of the distribution. Yeah. Well, it's it's great to have you here. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, it's following you on on LinkedIn and and all of the other uh, sites around. I mean, you're an incredibly busy person and 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 running so many major things. Uh, at Google, the Mandiant uh, announcement was obviously quite huge, and it's a busy. It's always a busy time in security. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah. The thing that really got me interested in talking to you, besides just sort of general interest in uh, the, the types of things that you work on and write was a, a post you wrote, I think, early, early summer uh, on defense in depth. And one of the things I really appreciate about your work is you, you really go into what's under the hood or under the bonnet, maybe you'd say, of, uh, of a lot of these things that we take as sort of uh, as factotums or something. And you started studying how other areas like, like aeronautics and things like that study, study safety systems. So we have a lot of security shibboleths wired into our assumptions. Uh, I mean, you hear de defense in depth three times a day in this business, it feels like, but I also feel like if you talk to people about it, you ask five people, you might get six def definitions. So it's not exactly a formal definition. And where do you think we are as an industry when it comes to defense in depth and defining it and making it a, a useful concept, I think people assume that it already is, but what's really required to move the industry forward here? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. You know, as you point out, it's funny, I wasn't intending to write anything about defense in depth, but I was starting to think about it in, you know, internal to some work I was doing. And, and I, you know, I thought, you know, I had an understanding of what defense in depth is built up over years of practical experience but i decided you know just in case to do a little bit of research and um you know i went around kind of various academic journals and did the normal kind of google search and various other things consulted a few bucks and it was just surprising i didn't really find any good really useful operating definitions of defense in depth to refer to i mean kind of the nearest thing i found was in some of the as you mentioned some of the other fields like kind of safety systems um you know control theory and various other things where there's quite a well-developed sense of of how do you build control environments that that have that don't use the language defense in depth but it's essentially de defense in depth so it kind of dawned on me it's a phrase that you know as you point out that we use a lot but we is 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 not necessarily misunderstood but is understood differently by everybody mm -hmm. everybody's built their own definition of it and you know when I you know when I ultimately think about this, I think the 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 goal of defense in depth is not just having multiple levels of duplicative controls like some people think, but rather it's having 
multiple layers of controls that are interlocking or interlinked in some way so that every layer is not just a, an incremental value it's more of a multiplicative value so there's 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 real real value uh, you know disproportionately in the amount of defense and depth you have but ultimately i think it's not just about duplication it's about interlocking or interlink interlinking layers of defense and you know and there's different ways there's different ways of doing that but i think fundamentally the more people approach this as an interlocking methodology as opposed to just a layered methodology that I think people are on the right track. And I, I can see right above your uh, left shoulder, there's one of my favorite books, Security Engineering by, by <laughs> Ross Anderson. And I think, you know, that engineering mindset um, that, that you talk about there is, I think there's so many opportunities for us as, as security engineers in, in, in sort of classic engineering uh, parlance. It's it's not necessarily the most complicated thing that that could give you the the overlapping type of control. Um, <clears throat> something as simple as a password lockout after three times or five times. It doesn't get much simpler than that than a retry lockout. But that adds an enormous amount of potential password strength as, as opposed to adding six. You know, taking ten characters and making them twelve, and twelve characters and making them sixteen. Sometimes. Something as simple as a lockout could be could be an example, just as one example. How, how do you think that defense in depth, um, you know, can create you know the composite uh, a, a composite system as a whole that is stronger? You know, in some cases, building up from less uh, technically advanced. It's not always about cryptographic advancements or something like that. How can you find that that right mix? And and how do you you know sort of design and test for that in, in practice. Yeah, I mean, th th there's a few approaches. And again, I, I don't claim absolute authority on this. I mean, I think it's probably, uh, you know, this. I think this is an area, as we kind of hinted at, that is crying out for some actual in-depth research and, you know, maybe even some academic and, um, you know, academic and engineering research. But from my Kind of experience there's a few ways of approaching defense in depth and thinking about it you know the first one would be what you might call architectural placement so you know if you're going to have multiple layers of controls then those controls should exist across different parts of your overall architecture and so some of the classic examples are if you're thinking about malware defense you don't just have endpoint you have that control at like different points of the architecture whether it's endpoint or server or web gateway or email system and you, you you think about defense in depth as similar controls but architecturally placed in different in different areas the, the second one would be to get that dispersed control effect and almost like positive duplication so a, an example of that would be having complementary controls that do a similar thing but having those things originated from from different teams um, and this occasionally is you know it's, it's only really applicable in very high risk situations um, but there are, there are plenty of examples in critical infra infrastructure where you have a control that, that you know a certain control that mitigates some risk and then you have a, a similar control in another place that essentially mitigates the same risk 
but it's implemented by a different team with different design assumptions, maybe a different vendors involved. So you get that kind of defense in depth of independent implementation. Another one would be what you might call kind of complementarity, which is making sure that every preventative control has a corresponding detective control to go with mm -hmm. it, not just to detect um, whether there's an event happened, but also to act as an immediate check and balance to to see that that preventative control is working. So in the in that, that also helps, you know, if you've got that balance between preventative and detection, it also helps tune the detective control because you can immediately put in the detective controls, the things that you should expect never to see because the preventative control should stop them. And that kind of builds on to another idea, which is arguably kind of broader than defense in depth, but it's still useful is to have continuous control monitoring mm. um, to make sure that the controls you expect are actually deployed. And in fact, the control of running continuous control monitoring is another part of defense in depth. Another thing which you kind of touched on is the notion that we said at the beginning, this, this bigger notion of kind of interlocking defenses. And you, you give the example of kind of passwords. Another example in the authentication space could be step up authentication, yes. uh, not just for high risk transactions, but maybe in the face of anomalous access activity. So you could be running just under regular authentication, but if the system, if a detective control spots some anomalous activity, it prompts you to do a step up authentication, which of course is a preventative control. And that interlinking, you can imagine many different ways of of doing that. You, for example, if you know in runtime environments, if you detected a failed signature of a, a in a run a, a runtime environment detecting a failed signature of a supposedly authentic container attempted to being run in the environment, you can imagine that triggering a whole set of activities further down the the deployment chain to put in place to trigger other controls on the assumption that you're now in a higher risk environment. Um, other things could be, which we've kind of experimented with is kind of transactional operations is making sure, for example, just looking classic kind of transaction systems like the, the whole ACID properties to say, imagine when you were logging critical activities that you have a, the log is written before the action is done and the action can only happen once it's been committed to the log. So you absolutely know that your logs are effective. And so there's a whole kind of array of these things, but again, you get the sense that it's not just the naive placement of duplicative controls. You've got to think about deliberately getting value out of those extra controls, again, for this underlying property that every control should not just be an additive value, it should be collectively kind of at least a multiplicative value. Yeah, I think the other interesting thing embedded in what you're saying is that the controls themselves need to be need to be threat modeled and they need to have they need to have defense in depth for the controls because we start seeing that the control layer is is very often targeted these days. Um, you know, another thing they sort of well, when I should, and so, and so, yeah. and sorry, just on that, you know, it kind of brings up and, you know, look, you'll, you'll be familiar with this given your background. I mean, it's like it's interesting when you look in terms of what the intelligence community calls tipping and queuing is where you've got you know, expensive detections that you only really want to prime and use mm -hmm. if you've kind of got some tip in another part of the environment. And this is classically in kind of things like geospatial intelligence where you have kind of broad satellite imagery to detect something which then tips the need for a more specialist satellite to go to do some deeper reconnaissance you don't deploy all of your deep reconnaissance for every part of the, the you know, every 
position on the earth and you know that's similar in other types of kind of intelligence collection and i think a lot of organizations do similar things it's like you don't capture full forensic logging of everything but if you detect an anomaly then that tips that tip cues you to then automatically switch on a whole detailed level of forensic capture while you're investigating whether the tip was actually something that was meaningful and again that that for me is defense in depth because you're interlocking different controls and making sure that they tip and cue each other yeah really well said and uh a lot of opportunities there. The uh, the last uh, guest on the podcast was um, Vittorio Bertocci from uh, Auth0. And he said, you know, he's done a lot of work on identity standards over the years. He said, you can do everything you, uh, you can do everything and feel like you did it all perfectly from a protocol level, but humans being what they are, they will come in and put the fork in the uh, electric socket. So you have to plan for that as well. And of course the attackers will help them put the attack, the uh, fork in the electric socket sometimes. Um, yep. One other thing I think that you know people don't talk about a lot in in security is is scale. Uh, it's sort of taken as well. I guess we'll just scale this now. But if you, I think actually, you tell me what you think. But I think for us as security designers, we have a, we, there are very few things in in systems these days that have to scale as much as security. Access controls everywhere, authentications everywhere, cryptography is everywhere. Um, and so we have this sort of embedded or sort of stapled to the side of our mission to defend all of the companies that we defend. We also have to scale with the, with the way the businesses scale. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that has been studied as well as it could have been, the issue of scaling security in, in some of the, the work in our field. What, what do you see as some of the keys to, you know, better ways to scale security designs? Well, it, it, it's interesting because I think, as you know, there's been a lot of research and very significant practical experience, especially from the large tech and cloud companies on sure. running things at scale. So I think there's, there's some examples of running security at scale. But what's interesting is I think a lot of security implementations that are out there, whether they're in kind of vendors or some homegrown things in various companies is they they focus on the security but they don't focus on architecting that security to be able to be scaled and uh, you know and as you point out in the question there's you know it's, it's it can be difficult to build a security system but it can actually be very very difficult to build one that will actually scale and this becomes really important as you point out in authentication but also in kind of you know large scale authorization systems this it's been interesting there's been plenty of vendors over the years that have come and gone because the, you know they've built identity authentication authorization and even kind of logging and seam type platforms where they were great and they were deployed but they then hit a massive scaling wall whether it's because they had to do a certain number of transactions per second for authorization or whether they had to capture more logs and more event information than they were ever really designed for and if it's not architected in the right way from the beginning, there's no way you can scale them by just adding more systems. Sometimes there's a clear architectural constraint. And I think we're getting more and more people in the security field, again, especially in the large tech companies and cloud companies, almost by definition, that know how to architect for scale from the beginning. Uh, but I think the thing a lot of security people need to keep remembering and learning is when they're building something, 
you can't just scale by adding more systems. It, architecture is a big factor of how you design for scale. And, um, and there's a lot of techniques for doing that. There's quite a lot of well-documented approaches to doing that. Uh, but generally speaking, in a lot of organizations, the security people often aren't familiar with that and they could do with a lot of partnership with some of the you know big systems architects to uh, to bring that discipline into security uh, i think it'd be useful for everybody yeah and along similar lines um you know i i think i think dan gears said one time uh, most most security decisions are made by non-security people which which that that really it was one of a classic dan gear thing where i you know you you sort of hear it for the first time and explains like 10 years of issues you've, you've struggled with all yeah. in a little. Well, well and, and, you know, and, and whether they know they're making that decision or not, they're still making that decision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about your blog, you know, philvenables.com and the other places where you contribute on Google's blog and other places is your writing really puts puts the reader in the in the chair of the security decision maker. And I, I think a lot of a lot of mistakes I see, and I made these same mistakes earlier in my career in the security industry is, you know, you say you say something like principle of least privilege and like this is going to solve it with, with these sort of um, th these sort of pithy statements. But the but the reality is it, it a lot of security guidance can feel like saying chess is easy. You just move your pieces down the board and take the other person's king and you win. And. It's like, yeah, that is kind of what happens. But along the way, you lose some pieces. And oh, by the way, the, your opponent's moving on the board too. And I, what I really appreciate about your writing is you sort of put your, the reader in the, in the sense of like, I'm 20 moves into this game. I've lost both my knights. Um, and what, what do I do next? And I'm, I'm curious. And I, it's not just me. I've heard a lot of people say that about your writing. So thank you. It's a, it is unique in this industry. And, and it really does help myself and a lot of other people. What do you think, of, what do you gain from writing? Like, how, does writing help you develop your own ideas? Is it a way for you to express things to your, the teams that you work with? Like, what, what role does writing help you on a weekly, daily, monthly kind of basis? Yeah, I mean, I, I find it, it helps force your clarity of thinking. And so it's been interesting. And, and I know uh, there's a number of companies that have shifted away from kind of presentation decks back into documents. Um, and, you know, a lot of tech companies, but not just tech companies are like this, where a lot more things are done off thoughtfully written kind of position papers, like documents as opposed to decks with just a few pictures and a few bullet points and i think when you sit down and write even if it's just one to two pages on a particular problem or a particular topic writing that down forces a degree of clarity in your own thinking that really actually helps you not just solve the problem but i forget who what the famous quote was about you know most of the path to solving a problem is actually getting a good description of the problem i think that's half the battle and writing that down as opposed to just sketching it out in a few bullets is is actually uh, is actually just really important and I, I also find the same thing for some of these other concepts that kind of bug me and just have me thinking about it deciding to write a blog on it is 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 a big part of helping me wrestle it through in my own mind about what i'm really thinking about something so i think i i 
I, I reasonably enjoy writing, but even if I didn't, I'd probably still compel myself to kind of write documents on things just because even if you end up never doing anything with the document, the fact that you've written it really does help your own kind of clarity of, of thought on something and it helps you kind of structure the ideas in your in your own mind in a way that some of the other ways of 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 writing down i you know of just putting together decks of stuff really doesn't get you to that to that level of detail um plus i i think you know when you communicate with documents i think you're able to get people to engage a little bit more deeply and it really gets to the point where we've we've i think in many parts of the industry and i'm not diminishing the fact that at some point you've got to visualize things and present things and you've got to verbally and and you know visually convey your ideas but ultimately like the power of a document and writing helps you get to a level of detail it was interesting just um you know this week we've seen um ian levy the um the the head of the cyber unit in the uk's um, national cyber security center left and he he wrote a closing blog post which um which was just classic all round but one of the favorite bits of his blog post was was about details matter and mm -hmm. and i think there's too much in the industry these days where you know there's kind of calls to action and just you know appeals we should just do these things better and you go okay like well what next and you can't get to what next without doing the detail and you can't get to the detail without writing it down and getting it out of your head and you're structuring it and i, I think we kind of underutilize writing and 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 focusing on at least some parts of the detail of problems to get to the right outcome and, and you know and avoid getting stalled so i you know I'd, I'd highly commend it to everybody just you know if you're stuck on a problem just like you know you don't have to write an essay you don't have to write a, a long essay about it just like writing a page of, of of things to help you get your thoughts in order is just so powerful yeah i think i think um you i think bucky fuller said um a problem properly stated is a problem on its way to being solved is one of the ones yeah. I think a lot, yeah. a lot of engineering is getting the problem statement right. Um, you know, one of the things that you uh, last question I had for you was, you know, I, you wrote a piece about um, under underappreciated parts about being information security. And one that really stuck with me um, was that we're fortunate that we get to work across the whole business. There are, there are a lot of places in large companies where you can kind of get stuck and you work with team A and team B, but you don't really work with letters C through Z in the alphabet. And, and information security uh, is pretty unique to be able to work with, you know, from the board of directors all the way to the engine room, you're, you're on, you can get, you can get off on any floor of the elevator uh, and there's, there's going to be something for information security to do and add value. Um, there's a lot, and, and we're going to run out of time, so um, there's a lot we can unpack here. Uh, your post is great, and I'll put a link to it in the show um, about what security can learn from these other parts of the business. What do you think security can uniquely teach other parts of the business as we're also learning from the rest of the business? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the main thing is, uh, and I've got to be careful because you know, I think I would reply in the context of good security teams can teach this. And I would hope, you know, everybody's a good security team, but obviously there's some, sometimes that's beyond people's control. One of the things I think good security teams do well that could teach other organizations a lot is, is how to maintain balance. And, you know, one of my other blog posts, I talk about this thing called the rule of thirds in how you build a security mm -hmm. team and you've got to balance 
technical specialists that understand the detail and really know where the risks are and then risk specialists who can translate that into business terms or risk consequences so that everybody else can understand it and then a bunch of what you might call operations specialists who can turn all of your artisanal processes into kind of industrial processes that kind of scale and continue to operate at the uh, at the scale and pace of the overall organization and having that balance is is key i mean if you if you just a risk team that is great at working with the business but you don't know where the you know where the the detailed issues are then you're not going to surface the right issues if you're a technical specialist and you have no risk specialist then nobody can explain to the business why they should fund all of the necessary activities and if you don't have the operations piece then you run out of steam after 12 months of first fixing the first things that have been identified you look at a lot when you start looking at the world through that lens of this balance between you know details orientation communication and engagement plus the operational capability to keep the show on the road whenever you see a problem in any other part of your your organization it's usually because they're out of balance in a similar way you know they have great experts but nobody understands what they do or they have great experts but they've not figured out how to operationalize and sustain that activity so i think a lot of organizations now um in even in kind of parts of business operations can often look at the security team and look at that balance of operation risk and technical specialty and domain expertise and figure out how to get them into balance so i think a, a good security team you know definitely a great one but even a good security team can actually give um you know give give the wider organization something to learn from getting that right yeah definitely the the balance uh is something that we we should all strive for and it's it's uh not 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 balanced like uh, a static balance probably i think more balanced like riding a bike where you have to be moving forward to uh to be balanced uh but uh all the same those are good lessons to keep in mind phil venables i can't thank you enough for uh joining me today on this discussion i know a lot of people will find it valuable and and thanks for all your work i'll put uh links in the show notes to the various blog posts uh and we will be following along with interest thank you again yeah. for your time today no, absolute pleasure. Great to uh, great to be here, and uh, you know, happy to um, happy to look at coming back in the future at some point. Mm -hmm.